As I mentioned earlier, that um, it's a special celebration year, 500 years since the start of the Protestant Reformation. It's an interesting thing. Um, I think it has been mentioned before that my wife and I and our family spent uh, around about 25 years in France, and very often we came across the French equivalent of PCI. I wasn't working uh, with the Presbyterian Church at that time. We were, we were with the Baptist Church. But uh, the equivalent of the uh, PCI in France is called the French Reformed Church, and they would be the descendants of Huguenots. Have you all heard of the Huguenots? The uh, French Protestants who came and sought refuge uh, in Ireland and in many other places. Are there anybody, anybody here who has Huguenot heritage? Are there someone very proudly putting their hand up there and some others as well? Great heritage of the Huguenots in our own country here and, and actually myself, uh, I am of uh, Huguenot descent. But for them, um, the, the, the adage of the French Reformed Church, the descendants of the Huguenots, is that they are a Reformed Church, but constantly reforming. And of course, that's what is so important for us. We, we haven't arrived. We haven't got there. We're not perfect. We don't do everything right. We still are on a journey, and we won't reach the end of that journey until Jesus returns and we see him face to face and we'll spend eternity with him. There's a lovely old hymn, a Welsh hymn that we used to sing in a church I was in in England, and it says, our God is the end of the journey. And when we see him face to face, well then, we will really know, even though we may have struggled for many years with the whole question of faith and remaining faithful to God, we will really know then, yeah, it was worth it. It was worth it. And today, I want us to look at the reason why we can walk on the journey of faith in God through Jesus Christ and by his spirit, the God who is three in one, working for us and with us. And what I want to say today uh, has complete continuity with all that went before uh, from the beginning of time and in particular through the Old Testament. We read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 26, and it's a passage where Paul has just uh, who is the author of this book, has just been thinking about the difference between those who have the law of Moses, the Jews, and those who don't have the law of Moses, the Gentiles. And he reaches the conclusion that both Jews who have the law and Gentiles who don't have the law, who didn't grow up with the law as part of their lives, all are sinners before God and all in need of God's forgiveness and God's salvation. And that's what we will be looking a little bit at this morning. Now, I want us to go away, way back, uh, three and a half thousand years ago, in fact, to the time that the Israelites were walking through the desert. In the wilderness, they had escaped from Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. Nobody could experience God's presence directly. They couldn't see God face to face. No man could see him uh, or else he would die. And so God gave to the Israelites a means by which they could meet with him and he could meet with them. And this concerned the tabernacle. The tabernacle was simply a big tent, as you can see on the picture there. 
and the tent was found in the middle of a compound uh, uh, made up of uh, lengths of cloth that were connected together with poles. And that was the place where God met with the Israelites through the priesthood given by Moses to Aaron. In the courtyard of the tabernacle, and I hope you can see the picture there, um, you can see the uh, altar of sacrifice where the Israelites would bring animals who would die in their place for their forgiveness. And behind the altar of sacrifice, there was this tent, this tabernacle itself, which was divided into two parts. And uh, the next slide will give an idea of how that division was done. The tent was divided into the uh, holy place, and in that holy place was an altar where they burned incense. There was also a table for bread, and the famous menorah, the uh, seven-stemmed lamp that the Jews uh, held, uh, still hold uh, so dear in their religion today. There was a curtain in this holy place, which divided it from the second uh, part of the tent of the tabernacle, and it was called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, there was what we call the Ark of the Covenant, or the box of the covenant, if you like, because it was simply uh, a wooden box covered in uh, gold. And the lid of that box was called the mercy seat. So there we have this very special piece of furniture which was found in the most holy place or the holy of holies in the tent of meeting. And it contained the Ten Commandments, the testimony that God had given to his people through Moses. The lid of this uh, Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat. Simply a lid, but it was called the mercy seat Because here would be seated the cloud of God's holy presence on the annual Hebrew holy day, which was called the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was the only time when the high priest himself, just one man on one day in the year, could enter this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where this lid called the mercy seat uh, was kept. The Day of Atonement, very special day for the Hebrews. Atonement is a little word that uh, translates the, the Hebrew concept or the Greek concept in the New Testament, and it simply means at one meant. At one meant. It simply means the way which God has given through which man Uh, who is uh, sinful, and God, who is perfect and holy, through which they can be made at one, where they can be reconciled. That's what atonement means, reconciliation between God and man. And so on this one day in the year, the day of atonement, and only that day, the high priest entered the most holy place and sprinkled blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. This was God's symbolic throne, symbolic seat. The blood of a bull was sacrificed for the sins of the high priest and his family. Then the blood of a goat 
was sacrificed for the sins of all the Israelites as a whole. And it was as if the uh, bull and the goat took the place of the sinners on whose behalf these animals had been sacrificed. They were the substitute for the high priest and his family and all the Israelites, and so their blood was placed, sprinkled on the mercy seat, and God would see that. And from the cover of the ark, from God's symbolic throne, God dispensed mercy to the repentant Israelites, which, of course, gives us that name, mercy seat. The sacrificial blood, so to speak, on this seat, covered Israel's sin so that God could see it no more. And therefore, God's anger against sin was turned away because he couldn't see it anymore. It was covered over. And at one moment, reconciliation became possible. There's a a very uh, poignant uh, theological term which uh, describes all that this meant. And it is the term propitiation. Propitiation. That is a word that means that God was rendered uh, propitious. That he was rendered merciful, favorable to the people through the sacrifice of these animals in the place of the sinners who offered them. Now, we're talking about three and a half thousand years ago. This is what happened in the desert and later happened in the temple in Jerusalem. So what has all this got to do with us? Is it not just historical? Is it not just part of Israel's story? How does it affect us? Well, that's what we need to look at, and that's what Paul was wanting to say when he wrote the epistle uh, to the Romans. He writes this, and this is what we've already read in Romans chapter 3. He says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the law of Moses, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction, no distinction between Jew and Gentile uh, in terms of sin and their need of forgiveness. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is the reason why I've chosen the English Standard Version, because it's one of the few that has retained this word propitiation. Other translations um, render it differently and and, and, uh, legitimately as sacrifice of atonement or sacrifice for our redemption, etc. But uh, it doesn't really convey the full meaning of propitiation, uh, which this word uh, means (coughs) in certain older translations. Of course, when we think of propitiation, we need to remember the reason why it was necessary. The Bible doesn't mince its words when it describes the fallen human condition that makes God so against us because of our sin, so angry with sin that is in every human being. Paul said this uh, as we read earlier. 
As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And that's not saying that everything we do is evil, everything we do is bad, because even those who don't know Jesus Christ can do many good things that are helpful for others and that make a big difference in the lives of others. And sometimes it's often been said uh, that uh, those who aren't Christians are better Christians than those who profess to be and are in the church. It doesn't mean that everything we do is wrong, but it simply means that none of us can present our righteousness, our good works, and say to God, look, we deserve mercy from your hand because we have done such or such. No, none is righteous in that sense, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, the Bible tells us that God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. He cannot do wrong. And his eyes are too pure to look on evil or tolerate wrong. That means that his sense of justice and righteousness requires that wrongdoers should be punished for the wrong they have done, for the sins they have committed. And the Bible tells us that on the last day, that we call the day of the Lord or the day of judgment, God's righteous anger, the word that the Bible uses is wrath, God's wrath or righteous anger will be poured out in judgment. And who is the one who has been appointed to judge? Jesus himself, Jesus Christ. Just imagine that we are all in God's courtroom. Every single one of us is in the dock, all mankind, because all of us are sinners. The verdict that the Bible clearly pronounces upon us is guilty. We are all sinners, just as Paul said, no one is righteous, not even one. We are all guilty before God. And because of our guilt, caused by our sin, the sentence upon us, everyone, is eternal punishment. The Bible makes that so crystal clear. Eternal punishment. But you see, God, as the Bible shows us, is also a God of grace. He knows that the sinful human beings that we are can do nothing to acquit ourselves of this guilt. We need someone to provide a way for the divine anger against sin in us to be turned away so that the guilty who seek forgiveness can be acquitted, can be given an amnesty, can be sent home free. So the Bible tells us about a rescue plan that comes from God himself. God himself provided a sacrifice that both satisfies his justice, meets the requirement of his own laws, and allows us to receive a pardon. That sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who gave his perfect life of obedience to God as a sacrifice on the cross on behalf of disobedient and guilty sinners like us. And because he died in our place on the cross, if we admit our guilt 
before God and accept that Jesus died to take the punishment we deserve, then we are acquitted. We are declared not guilty. Not guilty. Jesus is therefore our mercy seat. He is the propitiation for our sins. And on that mercy seat, on the cross, if you like, he poured out his own blood in death to cover our sin, just the way as the blood sprinkled on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, covered, covered, covered over the blood of the Israelites. His death on the cross was to cover our sin and turn God's anger away from us so that God could see it no more and we could be forgiven. Jesus was the sacrifice that took our place like the bull and goat on the day of atonement. He is our propitiation. He makes us at one, reconciled with God. And I want to look further into this truth uh, as uh, we uh, come towards the, the uh, conclusion of what I want to say today. I want us to return to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, this verse brings us to holy ground. We are standing on holy ground when we read this verse and the passage in which it is found, a passage which spoke so much to Martin Luther 500 years ago. Here in this verse is a mystery so deep that it cannot be fathomed. A mystery so deep that stands at the very heart of the gospel and it concerns the identity of Jesus Christ as our propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement. Let's go back in history to a, a medieval uh, writer, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time and theologian who was called Anselm. Anselm wrote a book to try and explain what the atonement was all about. His book was called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. Why did God become man, he asks in his book. And there he demonstrates several vital truths. Anselm tells us that God requires, God's justice requires satisfaction for sin. There must be a punishment for the sin committed, for the crime done. God's justice demands that. Then Anselm says, man alone should make that sacrifice because after all, he is the sinner and therefore he's the one who should pay for his sin. Man alone should make that satisfaction. However, says Anselm, God alone could do it. It was impossible for man. We've already seen that man can't make himself not guilty before God. God alone can do that. He is almighty God. And the way that he did that, the task of making satisfaction, fell to the one who was both man and God, Jesus Christ, the God-man. The God-man. So as we consider what Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says, God presented him as a propitiation, a mercy seat, a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. 
This means that the sacrifice of atonement that's mentioned here is identified as being Jesus Christ himself. Simultaneously, the one who is sinless man and God in flesh, the, the God man who died on the cross in the place of guilty sinners. And we'll see in a little minute why this is so staggering uh, in its uh, significance. Jesus, the God-man, suffered the penalty that divine justice requires. The crushing power of divine anger was poured out upon him. We see it already when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and under the weight of the world's sin that is weighing upon his shoulders that he is going to die for in a little while. We see in the Garden already how this divine anger was weighing upon him who knew no sin. The crushing power of that anger was poured out on him. So that means that of all mankind, he is the only one who could genuinely exclaim, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because the son was truly abandoned by the father. It didn't merely appear to be so. He was truly abandoned to the ridicule of his adversaries, abandoned to the most cruel of deaths, abandoned to endure at his own father's hands the punishment that you and I deserve. Completely and utterly cut off from his father's presence on that cross. And all of this so that divine justice could be satisfied. Now, on this point, some have argued that that is very unjust. How could Jesus, the perfect man who never sinned in his life, die in the place of sinners like us and allow us to go free? That's not just, is it? It's not very righteous. It wouldn't happen in a human court. How can God pretend to be just and accept the death of an innocent man in the place of guilty sinners? That was an objection that a lady in a church I pastored, my last church in France, often brought up, and it was a real stumbling block to her. How could Jesus, who was completely holy, totally good, perfectly righteous, how could he be allowed by his Father in heaven to die? For me, that's not right. It's not just. It's not righteous. And this was a real obstacle to her faith. Imagine I had murdered someone and received from the judge a sentence of life imprisonment. When the sentence has been pronounced, someone in the court, a completely innocent third party to me, shouts out, set that man free. I'll go to prison in his place. Take me instead. Would any human judge rightly agree to such an exchange. It wouldn't happen because it's not just. It would be totally unjust. He who commits a crime should be the one to receive the punishment for it. Isn't it morally wrong to punish an innocent third party for an offence somebody else is guilty of? So does God not appear to be acting unjustly by punishing his sinless son in the place of guilty sinners. 
And you see the objection that this lady I'm talking about had and that really was a stumbling block for her. The answer to that question is God unjust in punishing the innocent Jesus, a third party who was completely sinless in place of us. The answer to that question, is it just, shows us just how amazing God's grace actually is. In the divine courtroom where we as guilty sinners stand rightfully accused before God, there actually is no third party appearing for our defense. Well, you might say, well, there's God the judge. And there's mankind, the offender. And is Jesus not there as an innocent third party taking the place of the guilty offender? No. There is no third party. Jesus is not a third party. Why? Because the judge is God the Father. And the one who takes our place who takes our punishment, who becomes our substitute, is God the Son. Now Jesus says this in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. One God. The Apostle Paul later writes in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The same Apostle Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders when he says farewell to them. In these words, in Acts chapter 20, profound words indeed, he tells them, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Who bought the church of God with his own blood? God. God. So you see, there is no third party. Because God in Christ, God incarnate, God himself took our place on the cross. Is that not profound? Is that not deeper than we can ever fathom in our human minds? That God himself took the punishment we deserve and that his justice requires. God himself paid the price of our acquittal. To receive that acquittal and be declared innocent, even though I am guilty, I simply have to accept what God has done in my place for he has done it all he has done it all which is why Jesus cry on the cross is such a wonderful proclamation of victory it is finished it is completed I have done what was necessary for guilty sinners to go free the work of propitiation is accomplished completed from start to finish by God alone. Which means that I am free to go. Acquitted, not guilty, all because of Jesus, our propitiation, our mercy seat. That is the measure of God's amazing grace.
Stephen will not have the final uh, video, but I want us just to have a few seconds of silent reflection as we consider all that God has done for us. And then we will have our offering with the announcements. God has done all this for us. Let us bring our offerings to him with deepest gratitude. 